0: This is gonna be highly entertaining, I can tell. With me today, Andy Babuke. Andy is an American musician, author, consultant, and owner of Andy Babuke's Fab Gear in Fairport, New York. He is a a founding member and the bassist of the supergroup, The Empty Hearts, and was also a member of the Chesterfield Kings. Uh, Babuke is the author of Beatles Gear, all the Fab Four's instruments from stage to studio, first published in 2001, The Story of Paul Bigsby uh, out in 2009, Rolling Stones Gear, which was out in 2014, and Beatles Gear, The Ultimate Edition 2015. So, you know, he's uh, as an author, as a writer, as a retailer, as a musician, not only all of that, uh, Andy is also a staff consultant to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as well as to very significant auction houses in new york london and los angeles hi andy <laughs> welcome
1: well that was a mouthful
0: <laughs> yeah well you know i mean that's just so listeners get you know i want them to know who we're talking to here today and it's really exciting to have you here so thanks for joining me i really do well, thanks, appreciate it. thanks for having me not at all so before we get started into this whole universe and pop regalia before we get started, here's a quick backstory question. How does a young kid whose parents immigrated from the Ukraine end up getting to be the world's preeminent and most probable leading authority on the actual historic and legendary gear of the world's most iconic bands and artists of all time?
1: I blame it on the Beatles. Yeah? Okay. I yeah, think oh, yeah.
0: Probably, I would, I'd say everybody who ever wanted to play an instrument would say that. I
1: blame it on the Beatles. I had... Two older, uh, two older sisters, and um, and you know they grew up with Beatles records and stuff, and and uh, I I think it's when I saw Help, the film Help, you know, when I was little, I distinctly remember telling my parents when I grow up I want to be a Beatle. And they were trying to logically explain to me that, like, you can't grow up and be a beetle. You have to, like, do, you know, be a doctor, a lawyer, or something like that. And I said, no, 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 I, I want to be a beetle when I grow up, you know, and I was very adamant about it. Yeah. And here I am all these years later. I don't know what I am, but I, I, I mutated into something. <laughs>
0: You know, it's funny. I think a lot of everybody globally around the world would always have said the same thing, myself included. My mother came into the house with a Chet Atkins album, and the very first Chet Atkins album that she got me was Chet Atkins' Picks on the Beatles. And that was it, because I'd had Please Please Me, I had From Me to You, I had the singles, and I absolutely knew that I was the fifth Beatle. I knew it. (laughs)
1: we all did we all did (laughs) yeah
0: yeah isn't that isn't that amazing that that spread so let's get into it now uh and we're going to cover everything about you and i know we have a a very somewhat limited amount of time here but sure let's get into your books because we're going to touch on everything including the empty hearts uh the cd release we're going to get into everything you know hall of fame historian vintage sure all that stuff but let's get into your books the beatles gear all the Fab Four's instruments from stage to studio, which was first released in 2001. And uh, this has been uh, critically acclaimed. And it almost felt to me when I was first hearing about it, that it was going to be a book that functioned more of a catalog of sorts for, you know, vintage gearheads, uh, for the vintage gear that is actually used by the Beatles. But when you actually open the book and you get into it, And it starts reading like a narrative, like a novel, like a historic novel. It really reads much more encyclopedic or historical. And as an author, I would be curious how you drew upon gathering all of these actual people who probably who knew the Beatles as far back as the beginning of the history as the quarrymen. And you kind of wove it into their narratives. You want to talk about how this all came together?
1: Well, um, I was always like into trying to figure out what they, how they got their sound. Of course, you know, as you mentioned, my first band, the Chesterfield Kings, we started in the late seventies. So it's 78 and you know, the sixties had just ended not even 10 years before that, you know? So it wasn't a long time, but it was very passe. Like, you know, I, I got my first Hofner Beetle bass, I think in 79 and like, yeah, I remember the guy in the shop was saying, well, what do you want that for? That's stupid. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I like the Beatles. I, yeah, I want to get, you know, I got it for 75 bucks. You you couldn't give that stuff away. Nobody cared about it. And we started this band with the idea that we wanted to sound like bands from the 60s. And in making records, we would listen to the stuff and it, it didn't quite sound right. We knew we had to get Rickenbackers and Gretches and and Vintage Amps and Vox Amps, and you know, all that stuff. And, and it just didn't sound right. And so I started researching it more and more and more. And I, I became a bit obsessed with it, you know, studying all the pictures and everything. And um, I was working at a guitar store and one of my buddies, uh, you know, he saw me toiling with somebody that was trying to, con- you know, say, oh yeah, the Beatles used, uh, you know, super Beatles in the studio. And I was saying, no, they didn't. they used the British made tube amps and it used solid state stuff in the studio. And <clears throat> It was always like all this misinformation about the Beatles, what they did and what they used. And so at that point, I I had quite a bit of information on it because I was using that information in my band at Chesterfield Kings as we were making records. And so my buddy, he (laughs) he saw how frustrated he was. He goes, man, why don't you lock yourself up in your house for the weekend, get a case of beer and just write down everything you know about the Beatles equipment. You probably have a book. I go, man, that's a pretty good idea. Six years later, I owed that guy a punch in the arm because it didn't take a weekend. (laughs) Yeah. So that was the cusp of starting it and why. And and it kind of evolved, you know, because I was in the music industry already, uh, retail, but then also playing in a band and, you know, meeting a lot of other bands and a lot of guys that, you know, just touring and stuff with the Chesterfield Kings. I was able to get a hold of quite a few people, and when they saw that I wasn't just some crazy, you know, avid Beatles psycho fan, I was just actually doing a credible piece of work. Then, um, you know, I just started. It just started to evolve all these interviews, and um, and as far as the book, the way it writes, it could have easily been a book a list, and I was very careful not to do that. I wanted to tell the story of the Beatles from the viewpoint of a musician. Because at that point, there was a bazillion books out that, you know, talking about, you know, what kind of drugs they took, you know, what kind of affairs they had, you know, who they married, you know, all this stupid stuff that like, it's not stupid, but you know, it's just repetitive. And it's like trying to be controversial or clever writer or anything. I wanted to do a historical piece that we all love and know the music, but what were the tools of the trade and not just give a book a list. I wanted to tell the story from a musician's viewpoint. So that was kind of the nutshell of it.
0: Well, and you've done such an admirable job. When you look at this entire collection, it's how many pages just off the top of your head, you know how many pages the book is?
1: Um, the first book was 256 pages and that was only half of the book. I was mortified when the editor <laughs> said, well, we have to chop a lot of this out. And I go, why? And they said, well, because it's only going to be 256 pages. And I didn't know as my first book. Publishers work backwards. They decide what the price is going to be. They decide how many pages it's going to be. And then they make the book fit that mm-hmm. as opposed to creating a project. I, it was It was just kind of weird, new experience for me.
0: <laughs> yeah no i get it and you know if you for those uh getting a copy you know getting their hands on the book when you get into the first exemplary pages you've got people that knew george harrison as an example when he was a young teenager and you've got actual backstory on how where he got his first guitar You've got an actual picture of it. You've got a back disclaimer as somebody who knew somebody and finding him in the pub, whatever, and that's what he was playing. And then he traded that in for whatever the next thing was. It's very, very in-depth from actual people who were very close to them. How did you go about getting all of these people surrounded to give you the information?
1: Um, it, it it was pretty laborious. And you, you have to remember, I, I did this in the 90s, the research on that. There was no internet as we know it now. And for that matter, you know, long distance phone calls, you had to pay through the nose. There was no such thing as, you know, oh, well, you know, you just call wherever you want. It doesn't cost anything. My phone bills were like four to $600 a month. It was crazy. FedEx packages, you know, I we're still using a fax machine and that was like space age compared to you know what we have now
0: (laughs) well let me well let me ask you did the book sales and royalties or something did at least pay back all that money (laughs) they had to
1: listen the 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 book did really well um it it was published in multiple languages um you know we sold uh, i I think two hundred thousand copies or something like that of the first edition and then you know the it came out in paperback and Yeah. And I did really well. And then the ultimate edition, I finally got to do the book that I wanted to do. So that's like double the size of the first book. And they let me basically do anything I wanted. in it. so it's kind of cool.
0: Yeah. And that one came out, what, not even about, I'm guessing here, much, much later in the string of your books. Uh, Wasn't that around 2015 or something like that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. that, That was the last thing that I did. So, uh, yeah, I'm done with books.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, you know, look, I think of a lot of writers, we all know how much work they really, really take. So, I mean, when you look about it, you were probably even on that Beatles gear book, first edition, what, like you said, about six years of your life, putting that together?
1: Yeah, yeah. And the Stones one took 10 because it's, a, you know, longer time period, 50 years. The Beatles, you know, it's 10 years, so it's not as bad
0: yeah right well we all certainly know the history of the stones i was going to touch on that next but i just want to kind of get into this beatles thing just one more quick little dip here of all the things of tracing their entire history from studio pubs getting in you know on stage and everything else do you have an interesting section of the stories that you felt were probably most intriguing most fun or most exciting or juiciest or most enticing
1: um, there there were so many, you know, going through Ringo's drum sets in London in the 90s. He had no clue what he had. He just thought he had bits and pieces of drum sets. And I actually sorted them all out for him. Uh, you know, he, he had no idea he had full kits. So by looking at the swirl, you know, uh, finished on him, I was had all these photos and I was able to match everything up. So that, that was kind of cool. You know, seeing, uh, you know, we photographed. uh uh, McCartney stuff, uh, George Harrison's guitars. I mean, all those guitars are very iconic, but it, it was after the book came out, I would get called by a lot of people. They would email or call and say they have a uh, John Lennon's this or George Harrison's this, you know, it, always like, you know, trying to say they have something so they can turn around and sell it. And if I say it is what it is, they make more money on it. So I have to be really careful with that. And 99% of the time, it's just, you know, baloney, but you never know. So I always listen, you know, and I'll send me a picture. Um, It was a guy, before I did the new version of Beatles Gear, the Ultimate Edition, had contacted me, said, you know, he thinks he might have John Lennon's Gibson J160E. Now this is the guitar, his acoustic, that he wrote a ton of really famous songs on that. I reported in the first book was stolen. And um, <laughs> so, you know, I look at the pictures and I go, oh my God, shit. this this might be the guitar so i i dug a little deeper he sent me more photos and i i have a huge dossier of you know photos and things that i've you know put together through the years that i could research things and i i match up the wood grain and i call the guy I go where did you get this he bought it when he got out of vietnam in the 60s and he's had it ever since he bought it in san diego of all places and i'm like well, what do you want to do with that? He goes, well, I want to sell it if it's real. I go, well, you got a real big problem. I said, because it was reported stolen and Yoko Ono will want it back. And if you just try to sell it, I, I can't help you. I said, but what I can do is if you make nice with Yoko and work on a deal with her, I'll help you. And so I put him in touch with Yoko and like, he was a little like, well, I don't have to do it. I go, Well, let me me tell you, yeah, you you actually don't have to do it. But I'm going to tell you right now, I just went through a whole thing with Bob Dylan and the New Pork Vote Festival Fender Strat that he had the first time he ever played electric. I said, the people that owned it, they thought they're going to hot dog it with Dylan. Dylan sued him. It turned into a nightmare. And I said, you think Dylan's got a lot of money? Yoko's got way more money (laughs) than Dylan does. (laughs) And you don't want to fight with her, okay? I said, let me, I'll put you in touch with her office make a deal with them make it do the right thing and i'll help you and then you know subsequently he did and uh that guitar when i finally got to play it and and examine it and stuff sent chills up and down my back
0: the first song i played
1: on it was this boy that opening chord that's the guitar he did it on it sounds identical it was Uh chilling it was great
0: even in spite of the strings being, shall we say, old and not original, or probably having maybe been changed a few times, unless they were that oxidized and old. And... <laughs> but,
1: no, yeah. guy, that was the guy's main guitar. He just played it. He had no clue. He had read an article I wrote in, I think, Guitar Player, one of the guitar magazines, and I, they had me highlighting George Harrison's j 60 e which we photographed for the book, which is part of the Harrison estate. And I showed how the serial numbers of the two guitars are, um, you know, close cause they were bought at the same time and I have the receipts for them. And, um, <laughs> you know, sure enough, this guy just happened to read the article and he goes, man, I think, I think that's close to the serial number I got, you know, so it was, it was kind of fun.
0: Wow. I guess, I guess so. All right. Well, that's really good. And I want to touch on all of these items later in a, in, a in our talk, you know, we'll get into the, uh, Ringo Starr original Ludwig Oyster black Pearl downbeat drum kit. We'll get into the John Lennon acoustic, which has been, went off to, what is it? Somebody's auction house. I mean, these are all the things I want to get into and touch on, but let's, before we get into that, let's go into a couple of your other books. After your original book on the Beatles gear, you went into the story of Paul Bigsby. And for listeners who don't know who Bigsby was, For those of you who were ever watching rock bands and still to this day, but more formidably, probably back when we were all kind of going, oh my God, this is rock and roll. There was this like iron rod that kind of stuck off the bottom of the guitar and you'd see guys grabbing that thing and they would wiggle on it up and down. It would made the whole vibrato of a guitar go, wow, 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 wow. You know, if you know what, we used to call it a whammy bar, I guess, but Bigsby was the grandfather of that. So now that we, kind of explain for listeners that are kind of green and don't know that you want to touch a little bit on the story of paul bigsby and how you got into writing that book
1: well i had finished writing the uh beatles gear book and then fred Gretsch, who is a friend of mine he's the owner of the gretch guitar company <clears throat> um he asked me to write the story of paul bigsby and you know as most people do as you just explained everybody thinks that you know he's famous for this Bigsby vibrato that he designed in the fifties that are on Gibsons and Gretches and a million other guitars. Um, but that's actually not the part of the story. That's interesting. The real story is that he invented the solid body, electric guitar, not Leo Fender, not Les Paul, Paul Bigsby did. And Fred wanted me to tell that story because the Gretsch company had purchased Bigsby and they wanted this untold story to be told. So they hired me for a year to just work on that exclusively, and I did. Um, and I got a lot of flack for that book because, you know, when it came out, it basically shows how Leo Fender stole this idea for the Stratocaster and his first, you know, broadcaster, Telecaster model from Paul Bigsby, the whole concept uh, through Merle Travis uh, guitar that Paul Bigsby built from Merle Travis. and. Um, it, it was controversial because a lot of people, a lot of guitar enthusiasts never heard the story. They never knew they just figured Paul Bigsby built you know um, the whammy auto wh- systems <laughs> yeah but but the reality was is he was uh, a highly skilled skilled woodworker because he was a pattern maker, and um, he would build one guitar a month, and they were really expensive. so this is in the '40s, late '40s. to get him to build you a guitar was 500 dollars then. You could buy a full, you could buy a brand new automobile for 1500 So this was the equivalent of spending like, you know, ten, ten, twelve thousand dollars 12000 on a guitar. He would custom build it. You'd have to give him 50 bucks down and you had to wait almost two years to get him to build you a guitar. And the most famous celebrity players of the day all had Bigsby's. It was like a fashion statement almost. And That's what he should be known for. And that's kind of what the book tells that story. But man, oh, man, when that thing came out, and all these Fender fans and Les Paul fans, you know, Gibson guys, you don't know what you're talking about. You're an idiot. Uh, Les Paul invented the electric guitar. (laughs) No, actually, I didn't even make up the story. I'm just reporting it. (laughs) This is what happened it's history (laughs) sure
0: and so for a guy who's like just what we'll call a you know kind of a closet street player uh you know at the end of the day if i really want to go get a classic or a vintage i'm not going to go looking for a bigsby guitar if i can find one because i'm thinking well it's non-historic nobody knows that bigsby made a guitar hey i found an anomaly here hey i found something real dirt cheap that is not the case if somebody finds a bigsby today that's probably worth what a bullion, a stock of gold, or something, and a. And a, um, and a they go anywhere. They start at
1: about sixty to seventy thousand dollars. I've seen them high as high as a hundred thousand. Uh, you only built about fifty of them, you know, yeah, total. So, so as I said, a guy, as a guy
0: like I said, a guy like me is not walking in off the street and going, "Hey, I got a hundred grand. Can I have that off the shelf, please?" <laughs>
1: Yeah. Most of them are spoken for, so it's very difficult to even find one. The other thing, too, that's interesting about um, Paul Bigsby is he invented the pedal steel as we know it today. Um, so, you know, the, all the country players, the whole, you know, show bud and all those things, they're all derivatives of uh, what Paul Bigsby did. And his pedal steels sell for a fortune also. Wow. Real commodities.
0: Interesting. Well, hopefully your work is, you know, put him in the, uh, in the hallways of legacy stuff and not just for the whammy bar. Well, uh, let me touch on your Rolling Stones gear. And as you said, Rolling Stones have been around forever. They kind of defined what we know as arena rock, which now I don't know what the new definition is going to be as far as pandemic rock, streaming rock, but you know, they had been around for a long time and that is really, really huge. And as you say, the Beatles, as phenomenal of an impression as they made in the world's understanding of rock music pop music that's an awful long history there for the stones get into the rolling stones gear book how did that one come about and how did that get initiated were you just kind of hanging out with what mick jagger and over a smoke someone said hey i got a great idea let's do a book or how did that come about
1: no it was actually you know uh, publishers, if they see that you're successful as a writer, obviously they want you to do more work, you know, because they make money on you. And you know, so is that typical situation. Oh, we should do another book. And I go, well, and then, you know, you want to pay me a lot of money, I'll do it. And they said, well, hypothetically, what would you do it on if you do another book? And I said, well, obviously I'd do the Stones because, you know, they're the next biggest band and they're, you know, another big favorite band of mine and it's got to be a band that i like because i it's very difficult i got asked to do a lot of books on various bands and though i might kind of like them if i'm not totally into it i'm not doing it like they asked me to do a grateful dead one i'm like i like the dead's first couple records but right
0: right you know
1: you really got to be into it not knocking the dead but you know
0: no, you are got to be a deadhead. you got to be a fan of any of these, of, of any yeah. of these brand bands or band brands. you really got to be a fan and say, I'm into that. Sure. Yeah.
1: And, yeah. and so the Stones, it was very natural. And so, um, you know, I worked on that. And it, it was a little bit easier because, you know, I had already had the Beatles care book under my belt uh, and as far as, you know, you know, getting interviews and stuff. And then, you know, working directly with the Stones was, was really great, you know, they were very kind and let me, uh, go through, keep let me go through all this stuff. And, uh, you know, it's great. I mean, you get to play these iconic guitars that, uh, you know, you hear on records. you see them playing them live and stuff. It's just, it was really a lot of fun being a musician and, you know, being a fan of the band, but uh, again, it was a laborious amount of work. And, um, you know, Bill Wyman had tons of information, you know, he's the band's, uh, you know, historian, So he was very helpful and it, it, it's really cool. And again, I wrote Beatles gear and Stones gear um, as a piece of history for later generations. Let's face it, the Beatles and the Stones, their musical last way before, you know, way 100 years from now that stuff's going to exist in some format you know who knows how people listen to music then but they're going to be a a kid somewhere that goes man this sounds great how do they do this stuff you know and now there'll be a a written document that they could actually look it up and figure out you know this is how these guys made these sounds on these records and live and stuff so it's kind of cool
0: yeah well there you go let's get into your store, you know, the Andy Babukes fab gear. And this is going to kind of get into the whole knowledge base of what it is and who you are. Uh, As an example, let's say you found here's Keith Richards guitar and wasn't it cool to really, really play it. And you knew it was really his, but sooner or later, In backstory, you know, Keith Richards actually had to say, gee, I want one of those. And one of those was not the legacy instrument that he played until he got it. So we all know plenty of guitars, plenty of keyboards, drums, whatever. There's an infinite amount of stuff. I mean, the NAMM show this week, of course, is virtual, but there's no shortage of instruments being sold. So for vintage guitars, number one, amps, accessories, goodies, all of these toys... And your store, it's interesting because your store is Andy Babuke's Fab Gear. I'd like to know what makes it different and what makes a guitar vintage versus unique or collectible? And I know those are both kind of broad questions, but I think you kind of know what I'm driving at. Like, are you specializing in the sales of stuff that celebrity players have actually touched or borrowing from that iconism because those are significant instruments
1: um well i've been doing this for over 35 years you know in retail um you know selling guitars and equipment um when i started fab gear it's a play on you know beatles gear stones gear well i might as well have a shop called fab gear because you know it's it's an old It's an old term that the Beatles used to use a lot, saying that something was kind of cool, you know, fabulous. So they'd say, oh, that's really fab gear. It was slang. Um, So I just thought it was kind of cool growing up, digging that kind of stuff, watching Help and Hard Day's Night and stuff. Anyhow, um, as far as the stuff we sell, it's, um, you know, we're a full line retail dealer for factory authorized for, you know, Fender, Martin, Rickenbacker, Gretsch you know, Vox, you know, all the major brands, Marshall, all the stuff that, you know, professional players use. We, Because of, um, you know, my knowledge of vintage guitars and everything about like old Gibsons and Fenders and, you know, really esoteric stuff too, which I really like. um, That helps me um, as far as, you know, selling vintage stuff. And it also... I have a ginormous client base um, that, when they come to me, they know they're getting real information, and it's not like I'm trying to read it out of a book. I've, I've done it. I've lived it, you know. And it's not that I'm just a retailer. I, I play, so it's not like you know. well, oh, this I think this uh, Gibson bass is really cool because you know they say so. No, I've, I use it. You know what I mean? You know, a Rickenbacker twelve string. You know, I use it on records. You know. <laughs> I'm not just saying it to sell it, and I've been doing it and using it for you know going almost forty years. so um to me it's um it's kind of a win win situation for the customer and and you know, we always take care of our customers and and you were saying, you know, do we sell celebrity stuff? Um, I have a lot of customers that are celebrities. And I never advertise that. I know a lot of shops like to say, you know, this guy's our customer, this guy. I don't do that in respect to my customers. And a lot of times they trade stuff (laughs) and I could kind of be creepy and make a lot of money on the fact that I could advertise that it was it belonged to them or something like that. And I really never do that because I don't think that's cool, you know. Well, you know,
0: it's funny because I think I bought some, I don't even remember what the model was. It was kind of a knockoff of an L7. This is really, no, I'm just sharing my backstory. And somebody who had told me, who sold it to me, said this guitar used to belong to Carlos Santana's young first cousin. And so I said, okay, the price is right. It's got a cool backstory. All right, I'm in on it. And, you know, so I had it for a couple of years, but. It was that artist direct connection to the thing that does seem to increase that value. So at the end of the day, what makes a guitar vintage versus unique or what makes it collectible?
1: Well, I mean, vintage is criteria that they don't make it anymore. It was sought after at the time. Um, They used to say if it's 10 years old, it's vintage, but I don't know if that holds anymore. Um, Anything you kind of can't get anymore. Collectible, vintage, vintage. I. Think is you know stuff, sixties, fifties, forties. You know that you know depends on the model and, and the make of it, um, and how sought after it is. I mean, there are old pieces that are out there, just nobody wants them. You know, an old Harmony. You know, you know it was a crappy guitar then, and it's still a crappy guitar now. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Tell, us, know, how you, tell me, us how you no, tell us how you really feel. No, you know what I mean? Whereas you get like a Martin D-28 from, you know, the 40s as opposed to, you know, uh, you know, Harmony Sovereign or something. Yeah, I mean, those are cool guitars for a different reason, but they're not built the same. They're not the same quality, you know. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I always laugh about vintage. They say, oh, I got a vintage Ovation guitar. Well, the problem with an Ovation guitar is it's got a plastic back just by nature, how they, you know, how they were designed. Um, and they never last because wood expands and contracts. So the top moves, but the sides don't. So they always crack. So that's why you never see people collect them. And and that's why when people say, Oh, I got a, I got a vintage ovation. I say, well, they're worthless. I mean, they're, you know, <laughs> when you buy it, it's not worth more later unless you just love it or something. So that's where you get a thing where if a celebrity, like if Mick Jagger used it, you know, on the tattoo you tour all of a sudden it's valuable because he used it, you know what I mean? Whereas as an instrument, it's not really that valuable. On the other hand, you know, Keith might have, you know, an old fifties telly that's worth a lot of money, you know, it could be worth thirty, forty thousand $40,000 because it's an old telly, but then a Keith plays it now it's worth, you know, a hell of a lot more. So um,
0: right. it, and-
1: and it also, it, it also depends on the celebrity. I mean, certain, celebrities you know they just get more than other celebrities do you know what i mean it's just how it is you know
0: right and then you find now the manufacturers and they all do it and they've been doing it for quite some time they'll make an artist's signature guitar or a musical instrument and they expect and and i guess it does have some value how does that become uniquely valued to either a player or other artists, or on another hand, the collectors. So, you know, here's an example. Uh, A Gretsch limited edition puts out a reissue of a Projet guitar, which was the the model guitar originally played by George Harrison, you know, the black Projet. And so, so when a guitar maker puts something like that out and it has the artist's signature name on it, And they say, well, we're only going to maybe put out 300 or 600 of these, which are going to be made, and it's got the artist's signature on it. But we all know that's not the same thing as getting your hands on the original guitar or, say, the drum kit that was owned and played by the original artist. So how do those values differ? And in your opinion or in reality, would we see the next player on the street actually playing that guitar or that instrument if they really were owned by a celebrity artist and they were so valued, you're not going to see somebody go, Oh gee, I just bought a $150,000 item or a hot, like, you know, here's, here's an example, the Ringo star original Ludwig oyster black Pearl downbeat kit that you were involved in helping to put together and evaluate. I think the auction house started that what five years ago, they started at around what 700 grand when Ringo put that on the market or up to auction. And I think it closed yeah. up at what $2.1 million dollars. For the original. Yeah, kit. Jim Ursay bought it. Yeah. Jim Ursay, the and, guy and who he, owns
1: the Colts bought it.
0: Yeah, and he didn't even get the snare drum, from what I understand, because Ringo still values that snare drum and he worked and he travels with it. But I mean No, that-
1: the, it was it was offered separate in the auction. They they offered the snare drum separate. And the guy that was there buying for him was supposed to buy it, but he was a bit of a nut, nuthead and he didn't do the what he was supposed to do, so Ursay didn't get it. Ursay wasn't there. You know, and that, that kit set up in his office, he's got like an atrium to his office and he's got all this cool stuff in there.
0: So I guess that answers the question. How does it differentiate? Like when a guitar manufacturer puts out a projet, it's got George Harrison's name on it. They're saying, okay, it's a great guitar. It's only gonna make 300, 600. Again, where are these values different then because it's an artist's signature model and you know, it's not really the original singular item that was actually owned and played by that artist. And if you were the person buying the thing, would you go out, you know, playing it in clubs or playing well, it on the road?
1: Well, a lot of people, like, I always say it has a lot to do with the the band and the performer themselves. So obviously the Beatles are iconic. So you have a good example, like George Harrison's Duo Jet. It's, um, they did a replica of it. They did 60 of them. And it's got even all the scratch marks, it's identical. And then they do a production model. So if a guy's a Beatles fan and he wants something like, he hears on the record you know Gretsch made a nice faithful re re you know reissue of it you can buy it for like 2500 bucks or so the the one that they only made 60 of which it's identical i think those sold for like twenty thousand dollars so it's it's i think it has a lot to do with uh you know how big of a fan you are you know like for instance uh, martin guitars um just uh released, um, a Gilmore acoustic six string and a 12 string, which, you know, it's a signature model. It's to his specs, what he wants. A lot of people like Pink Floyd, a lot of people like Gilmore. And so, you know, those will sell aggressively and they're, they're not cheap. They're expensive, but you know, if you're into Pink Floyd and you know, you want to have like a cool collectible instrument, it'll hold its value. I think they're, Signed on the inside by Gilmore as well. So, all that kind of stuff adds to the value of it. And it goes into that collectible lore of guitar uh, collecting. You know, a lot of people collect, you know, different things, Uh, guitarists and musicians alike. We like collecting guitars, it's tools of the trade, they're fun. And the cool thing is, guitars are always kind of hold value if you buy the right stuff, if you buy the right kinds of instruments. You could usually make money on it. A lot of times, it performs better than stock.
0: Yeah, indeed, you can actually find a lot of it being traded for the investor profile, and I guess the savvy investor who knows what he's buying, he may not obviously isn't a player at all, but he's he's buying it for the same reason he buys a bullion, you know, a gold brick, a bullion or something. So yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, and but I always say guitars. If you buy the right ones, it's a great investment. Um, and, and, and it's functional art because they're great to look at guys like displaying them because they just look great but then you can pull it off the wall and actually play it so i always say it's functional art
0: yeah absolutely yeah, there you go stars cars guitars but you know having something to play with has got value on the empty hearts super band first of all you've had a few releases now the last one that came out the second album it's a heck of a release it's got all the garage band roots. It's got the glam pop glossiness of many, many legacy bands before. Tell us about who's in the band for those people who may not know.
1: Well, it's myself. Um, I played bass in the band, as I did in the Chesterfield Kings. Um, and then uh, Elliot Easton from the Cars is the lead guitar player. Uh, Clem Burke from Blondie is the drummer. And Wally Palmer uh, from, the, from the Romantics is the lead singer, rhythm player, and harp player
0: and uh the album is out on uh what is it wicked cool records and that's the label owned by stephen van zant right he's noted for playing with bruce springsteen's e street band and uh somehow you got together with him on their label on his label
1: yeah uh uh, stephen's a dear friend of mine i've known stephen for a long time and and so have the other guys in the band you know the guys uh wally's known him and clem of course and elliot but um Uh, The Chesterfield Kings were on his label, too. So, um, you know, I was out to dinner. My wife and and I were out to dinner with Stephen and his wife. And he was asking, you know, who's going to put out the new album? And I I said, I don't know. We'll probably stick with, you know, I think it was a division of Universal. And he goes, my label just got bought out by Sony. You always got a home with me. So I said, okay. (laughs) No discussion, had. Let's go.
0: Nice. Nice, very cool. I love when relationships move forward like that. So the band and the release to me is obviously, and I know other reviewers have said similar homage to it. They said it's obviously hell-bent on paying homage to the popular styles of the 60s. You know, you can hear the roots in it. You know, I hear very direct impressions or styling uh, from the jangly chiminess of The Birds and Roger McGuinn on on a song like Run and Hide from You. Uh, And then you can hear very distinct styling from the Beatles vocally, like on "Coat Taylor, which sounds like it's borrowing the vocal styling from paperback writer. That's to me. Um, (laughs) And I I know you guys are probably doing that on purpose when you're not only paying homage, but you're kind of doing a pop culture review. So who's, who's doing the writing on this material and what have been, or what becomes the parameters on the styles that are, you're borrowing versus the original lyrics your hooks and the song structures, who's, who's doing all that?
1: Um, we all write together. That was one of the premises of starting the band. We, we the, the whole idea was uh, we wanted to get together. We're all friends socially and we just wanted to get together. You know, you can't spin the clock back, but you could think back to the time that you heard the Stones and the Beatles and the Who when you're a kid and you're like, man, I wanna get a guitar, I wanna be in a band. And I said, that energy and that mindset Put you in a place, and we just wanted to get in a room and write some songs, and that's how the first album was done. The second album, you know, the the first record was quite successful, and we toured on it. We thought we should probably do another one, so we had fun with it. We took our time this time, and we wanted to explore some different stuff and use a lot of different types of instrumentation, mellotrons, and all kinds of you know, wacky stuff, sitars and stuff, and you know, and go a little bit deeper. And you know, we all kind of. go back to our roots and you know that's the music we grew up with if you're going to steal ideas steal from the best you know how how can you go wrong stealing from the beatles the stones the who the kinks you know pretty things all the great bands that we grew up listening to and it's just what influenced us as well as you know 50s stuff and blues you know bo dilly chuck berry little richard all that it's all part of our dna so It wasn't like we're trying to be something brand new and trying to create music that's so no one's ever even heard this style of music before (laughs) it's all over the place so we just we just wanted to basically do a record that um we liked and that we'd be happy playing in front of people and, and just have some fun so when we write songs anybody has an idea shows up with it and it could be something I came up with or Riff Elliot came up with, and then he'll show it to me and Wally and Clem, and then we'll go off and work on it. We we'll might come up with some lyrics and then, you know, Clem might say, no, we should do this. And, you know, I mean, it, it's very organic, which is what I like about it. Cause, you know, there's ideas I had that are on this album. And if I listen to the original demo that I did, and I showed it to the guys and the way it ended up turning out are totally different, which is cool because that's the organic part of being in a band, you know, it's supposed to evolve.
0: Right. And I would think it's collaborative and good. You don't have a lot of dissensions like uh, some of the iconic bands had when they were had, having movies made of them prior to their breakup. You guys get along really well and, and it's very, not only organic, but it's very productive. You don't have a lot of battles over these issues and creation.
1: No, the the premise of the band really, I mean, listen, we've all been in bands that have been successful, you know, the Cars, Blondie, the Romantics, Chesterfield Kings, you know, different levels of success, obviously. Um, And with that comes, you know, the typical stuff of being in a band, you know, you get your real highs and you get your real lows and you get every nightmare in between and every cool thing in between. I mean, that's the, if you're in a band that's successful, you've seen it all. And we have each one of us individually in our own situation so we don't need drama we don't need any of that stuff and so why don't we have a band and just have fun and that was the premise of the band just get together and have fun and the minute it's not fun let's stop you know that 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 was the whole thing
0: yeah and it is fun and you've got some really amazing stuff not only do you pay homage to these great legacy iconic bands and players of the past hokey smokes you actually were able to get some iconic and legacy players on this particular cd release the track remember days like these for crying out loud you actually got ringo star
1: yeah yeah it's pretty cool when you get a Beatle to play on your record
0: <laughs> yeah now you're back to the discussion of our childhood and who was going to be the fifth Beatle, and you knew it you actually got a Beatle to play on your record how'd that get
1: well, it was interesting because we had cut all the, we, we had been getting together in a studio. I have a studio here in Rochester and, and mind you, we all live in different cities. So playing in a band like this, it's, you literally have to do a lot just to get together and jam, you know, so we we're, guys are flying in from LA, from Detroit, you know I mean? Or we go out to LA and play. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's not like you just show up, hop in your car and you show up, and get together with your buddies in a room and play. I mean, it's, it's, it, It takes a bit. So we had been getting together, getting the songs together. And then we got together with our producer, Ed Stasium, who's genius in his own right. He's done everything from the Ramones to, you know, smithereens, you name it. He's got platinum records up the Yang Yang living color. He's a wonderful guy and great friend of ours. And really we always call him like the fifth empty heart, but, um, You know we were recording the songs the basic tracks for the album at my studio and we got done with it and i think clem had to go do a blondie tour or something like that and um we had finished the basic tracks and then i think wally and i came back to those guys came back with ed to uh do vocals you know and we're working on it you know as you do on a record and it was like that evening we're out to dinner we're having some Martinis and stuff and Wally started lamenting over this song and the song remember days like these he actually it was a song that he had in his head for years we actually have demos of it for our first album and he decided let's just wait on that one you know we got enough songs we'll just wait so we pulled that out for this album and we cut it and he kept on lamenting I oh, it was just a little fast man. I should have asked Clem to play it more in the pocket, you know, and me and Ed were like, no, man, it sounds great. You know, he goes, yeah, but it should be a little bit more laid back. And while we we're having these martinis at dinner, he's, he's saying, you know, when I play with Ringo, cause Wally played in the all-star band and toured with Ringo for I don't know, about two years or so, he goes, I used to just stand in front of the drum riser all the time while I was playing rhythm and, and like, and Ringo just plays in the pocket, just like, you know, that's what the song needs. And he just kept on talking about it. And I go, all right, Big Shot, well, then why don't you call up Ringo and <laughs> ask him to play on it, you know? you know. And then, oh, it, oh, you can never get Ringo to do it. The Beatles don't play on people's records. It just doesn't happen, you know? But he kept on talking about it. And so then it became like a joke between me and him. We finished the vocals, and, and uh, he, he went Back home to Detroit. And I, middle of the night, like I'd get up and send him a photo of Ringo from like Help or something, you know, and text it to him just to drive him nuts. And then I said, Yeah, did you call Ringo? yet yeah, did you call Ringo? It just so happened that he was talking to Ringo about something else like months later. And Ringo asked, You know, Wally, how's the new album coming? You know, how's the recordings going? He says, Funny you should ask. So We've got this one song, and the guys have been, you know, I told the guys how. You know, you should. We should. We. Too bad we couldn't have Ringo play on it because, you know, he could really play the part. He goes, "What do you need me for? You got Clem Burke, he's one of the best drummers in the world." And Wally told me, "He goes, well, he doesn't play like you play, though, Ringo." You know, I said, "Okay, well, I'll do it." And so that it was this. That's how it happened.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, that's a that's an amazing piece because that alone goes down in history, doesn't it?
1: yeah yeah i mean like uh clem always tells people you know when the album came out we did uh, they had us doing a lot of interviews with different magazines and there was quite a few magazines that he told they they asked clem about it because obviously he's the drummer we literally had to take his drums off the track and put ringo you know ringo played to the track the track was already recorded and uh you know people were asking him and clem said well Because you know, Clem's a huge Ringo fan. His two favorite drummers are Keith Moon and Ringo. That's it. You know, that's his whole thing. And um, he says, you know, it's an honor. He goes, I I got to play percussion on it. I play tambourine and percussion on it. He goes, but in all reality, we look at it like, you know, we kind of get the Beatles seal of approval on our album, which not a lot of people get. So to us, it's a great honor. And uh, just what Clem said, you know, you get a Beatle to play on it, you get the Beetle seal approval. It gets no better than that.
0: <laughs> that is probably the testimony or the endorsement that everybody, yes. everybody would, would ever want. Absolutely. So uh, let me go back to your actual super band production and the way you guys stage yourselves, because if you do pay homage to vintage pop and, and the fab instrumentation, and this is also rather a culmination of all the things that you are as far as a historian of the instruments of the actual legacy pop culture. Do you want to touch at all on what instruments you guys in the band are playing? And would you say that they are all vintage collectible or like many of the tribute bands that you see today, they're actually trying to play the actual fab gear type of instruments that the that the original artists would play i mean would real fans take a look at what you guys are playing guitars drums all that stuff your bass and would they say yep that's the real deal guitar right there that that's the real deal bass or the drum set would they recognize this your instrumentation as being pop here
1: yeah it's 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 interesting because like all of us independently, you know, like for instance, Wally with the Romantics, he's always used a Rickenbacker. I mean, he's got like a lot of guitars in his personal collection, but you know, you see him playing with the Romantics. He's usually playing a Rickenbacker and, and he's been playing, I think the one that he plays now, he's been playing for years and years and, you know, they're just tools, you know? So, but he happened to pick that, you know, and he's got old Gretches. I think, you know, I mean, that's what he uses. Elliot, for instance, he's got a massive guitar collection, and everything's left-handed, which makes it even rarer. But uh, he's got every guitar there ever is and and had every guitar there ever is. He's got a lot of custom-built stuff. But again, they're tools, and we all like all the sounds that we hear on all the records we grew up listening to. So we know how to get it, you know what I mean? We know if you need a Tele for this song, you need a Les Paul for this, you need a Rick 12-string for this song and um the cool thing is is i have a studio here in rochester and i literally have every single piece of vintage equipment that's cool like everything every amp ever made every everything and i got a massive guitar collection in my personal collection yeah i've got over 250 guitars i don't even know how many i have like well over that hard to keep track of them sometimes but when we get ready to do a record i pull all this stuff out and we use it you know elliot shipped a whole mess of his guitars to rochester so we would have all these things here as tools to cut stuff um we even had you know for clem we have a real beautiful uh you know brand new custom built ludwig set um that we had built uh ludwig built it for us but i also have like a 1962 super classic champagne sparkle like absolutely like mint brand new shape and we had that in the studio with you know our road guys came in and they got everything tuned up and perfect so we had every tool every keyboard like I said you know, everything from a Mellotron to a Vox Organ to a Hammond B3 you know pianos everything that you could imagine you know Claveline, even I had there you know sitars and we used a lot of that stuff on the record I mean it was all over the place you know so that's the fun as a musician um being able to go in and have all these tools at your disposal and if you get a crazy idea in your head you just go grab the instrument and try it and Ed's such a great producer he would encourage it he'd be oh yeah let's try it man get in there and do it you know and and everybody in the band's talented enough where they could just grab an instrument and just start playing it. It was just, you know, fun. Wow. It
0: sounds like going to an amusement park or a toy store, which you've got every possible dream come true is right there.
1: It's, it's uh, yeah, it's fun. It sounds
0: great. <laughs> Andy Babuke, let's go ahead and touch back on your books and let's tell readers, fans, where do they buy your books? No, you could get them Amazon and, you know, Barnes and
1: Noble and all the regular, you know, booksellers online or whatnot. Um, we do also offer it um, on my shop's website, uh, Andy Um, So it's available there too. And if you buy from there, we could uh, autograph it for you as well if you want a, a personalized copy. Um, but yeah, they're available. So they're kind of cool nice coffee and, table books
0: yeah great and then of course if people want your instruments they can go to the same online shop with you at uh again you want to give that url yeah that it's
1: website. it's uh andy babukes fabgear.com or you could just google fab gear and you'll see it'll come up uh we're located in uh, rochester new york um and uh fun little boutique shop
0: yeah i would it, I, I could imagine that it is and as far as the CD releases for the band, the big supergroup, what are you guys doing? You're gonna, obviously nobody's doing anything with the pandemic. Do you have any plans for touring? Well, when
1: stream, we, rec- when we recorded sure. the album, the concept was that we were going to go out and do a tour of here in the States and go to Europe and then go to Japan again. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that all ended. I mean, literally the week that they shut down New York State, um the guys were coming to rochester it was pre-planned like months ahead of time they were literally had their flights and everything they were going to come to rochester they're going to be here for like a couple of weeks we we're going to start rehearsals for a live show and you know we had to like literally like i don't know man maybe you shouldn't come because what if they shut down the airports and you can't get out you know sure. uh, it was so unreal and weird um and then you know as we all know what happened but um Yeah, we're just all in limbo right now. We would love to go out and hopefully this is done sooner than later and go out and start touring and and promote the record uh, uh, and and play.
0: Well, and I guess like other artists, maybe the answer right now is just uh, streaming concerts. You know, you've got enough significant fan followers on Facebook, Instagram, uh, bands in town. Uh, Well, the label
1: had us, the label had us do a bunch of videos. So, you know, typically you you do maybe a couple of videos for an album. I think there's six of them for this album, you know, in lieu of being able to tour, you know, Wicked Cool did a phenomenal job promoting the record and, and uh, you know, all these videos that we did. So it's kind of cool. That's, I guess the next best thing to being able to play and, uh, you know, hopefully, and even with streaming, I mean, uh, again, we looked into that, but we all live in different cities. So, right. you know, if a band's all in one city, you could get together, you know, turn on camera and stream it, but we're not even there. You know what I mean? Right. So it's t- more difficult for us. So, yeah, listen,
0: yeah, yeah, you got to go Things find, are worth
1: you, waiting you, for, right?
0: Exactly. And otherwise, you just got to go find a rooftop. You know, so yeah, we'll find a way to make that happen. So for fans, readers, the CD release, the second album by Empty Hearts, the super band. As far as picking it up, I'm sure you can pick it up in all the usual places, the usual suspects. And for more information on how to reach Andy in general as an author or as an expertise, or if you just want to get in touch, how would people reach out to you, Andy? Oh, just
1: through the website. Yeah, it's as easy as that.
0: Super. Well, listen, I want to thank you for spending this time with us today. It's been loads of fun. And as far as Beatlemania, Stones time, just the whole thing and going back through the whole pop 60s, certainly knowing what you guys are doing to preserve the legacy and the sound and playing so much real, excellent, fun music. Thanks for doing what you do. And thanks for joining us here today.
1: All right, man. Thank you so much for
0: having me. You bet. We'll talk again soon. You stay well and healthy. All right. You too. Okay. Take care, Andy.